So I was reading this article on Kotaku uh, a few weeks ago about the world of fan-made Pokemon games and how the creators of these of these games now basically live in fear of Nintendo and having their work being sent a letter from mm-hmm. attorneys and you know like cease and desist letters. And it was so fascinating to me because. Um, I mean, I sympathize with these people, of course, but also because the the, the universe of fan-made games and mods and ROM hacks, whatever you want to call them, but in general, these fan-made creations, I never really paid attention to because I always thought, you know, it's basically like a, like a, I don't know, like a mod. You, you can change things and they're not official, so what's the point? Basically, that's always my, been my reaction. Um but then I, you know, I started doing some research because I, I read the story and and I and I discovered all of these communities and all of these people so committed to their projects. And then I looked at the numbers. Uh, some games that had over a million players, for example, games that have been several years in the making. And so I, I got curious, you know, because when I see people uh, doing these kind of projects, it always fascinates me from a creative and business perspective. How can, you know, why do people invest their time into this and what tools do they use? Why do they do this? And so I, I was sort of going against my preconceptions of fan-made games or silly creations. And after doing some research, I ended up on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is fan-made games are awesome <laughs> and I want to know more about them. Um so I, I kind of wanted to talk about what's the history of fan-made games, what, you know, some examples, what these communities look like, um, because I think it can be really fascinating. And I, and I don't know if you guys have any experience with these games, but I've been blown away by the stories that I've, that I've found on, on the internet. I think that my position is mostly the same as yours, like, and, and has been in the past. That I'm kind of just like, they're not the real games. How good can they be? Right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like like I am aware of Pokemon Uranium, which I know is one yeah. that you want to talk about, but I've never really paid any attention to it because I'm like, well, it's not a real one. So I kind of have just ignored it. I mean, and also along the lines of thinking that these are these are risky creations, right? Like yeah. people are playing around with copyright material to either base a game or to use that stuff to make a game in their own image. And that just just feels like a risky proposition, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so most of the games that I that I've pulled and and saved for this episode are they tend to be Nintendo fan games and especially Pokemon games for reasons that we'll get to in a minute. Um, and it's interesting also because of the you know the, the company has been in the news not just because of the Switch or Mario Kart and Zelda, but because of their this relationship between Nintendo and the creators of fan-made games. Spoiler, Nintendo doesn't like them, and they <laughs> have a lot of lawyers sending out letters. Um, and also, I wanted to kind of address the, and maybe Shahid here can clarify, but the difference between fan-made games and mods to games. And in my mind, now my de- this definition may be wrong, but in my mind, a fan-made game is a whole thing, like a, an, a, a complete experience, a complete new game that is based on an existing universe that uses a bunch of tools, whether it's for music or for characters or for animations, but it's a new game. Whereas maybe the mod 
starts as a modification to the game, as a tweak to the game, but it's still based on the original game. And I know that it's a blurry line, but I kind of wanted to know maybe how the industry sees this difference between the two. There is a very blurred line. It's not so much a line as a gulf. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's just this massive continuum. One way of looking at it is that fan games are uh, typically an homage that uses copyrighted material. Mm -hmm. Whereas a mod can do, but typically doesn't, because the purpose of it is to alter something that exists and for it to take a new form. So you're right, a fan game can start without access to the original game, and therefore is more an homage, whereas... A mod game, if you really wanted to draw a line, a modified game or a mod is any number of modifications, be it to the code, be it to the data, uh, be it to the visuals of a game that either allows for that to happen or in the earlier days didn't allow for that to happen. And of course, the culture around this is radically different depending on the company that you're talking about. So if you take Nintendo, they take a very hard-line view. They protect their IP vigorously, as you say. They have uh, very experienced lawyers, and many of them. But a company like Valve actively encourages it. Mm -hmm. And we'll certainly talk about that later in the show. The first example that that I wanted to mention right away is, as Mike says, Pokemon Uranium. And... This is probably the most popular and the best example of a fan-made game and the uh, ultimately the, the sad fate that it encountered. Mm-hmm. Um, Pokemon Uranium took nine years of work. Uh, I remember this game being in, the, you know, in video game blogs before it came out, and it's been for several years. And what was different is it looked like a real Pokemon game. Uh, and the developers actually... You know, they spent a lot of time to, to add so many different features. Uh, For example, the game had 150 custom new Pokemon. Of course, not official ones, but the developers created their own Pokemon. And, you know, I took a look at the the at the Pokédex of this game, and it actually looked pretty good. Uh, the, the, I liked the designs, and they looked like reasonable additions to the Pokémon series. Like, they made sense. Um, in Pokemon Uranium, you could talk to the Pokemon, so you could have like conversations between the trainer and the and the Pokemon. There was a new nuclear class, uh, so in, like a new element in the in the Pokemon types, and the the developers even added online trading and battling, like their own versions of the GTS, the Global Trade Station, so you could actually play with another Pokemon Uranium player. Uh, you know, on PC because it was a PC game. Um, and in terms of graphic style and music, it was basically like a DS, an early DS game. It wasn't a 3D Pokemon game, it was a 2D one, uh, but it was slightly more advanced than the GBA uh, Pokemon games. So I would say it was a DS era type of game, which makes sense because if you consider nine years of work, uh, it basically came out, you know, during the life cycle uh, the developers started working on it during the life cycle of the original Nintendo DS, not the 3DS. I would like to play devil's advocate for a moment, Federico, if you will allow me mm. to. Mm-hmm. So this game, 
they were developing it for nine years. You know, it was like a, a real development situation, right? Like they're trying to make this game the best that they can. And they went ahead and created their own Pokedex, so 150, which is more than enough, and their own ways of playing, their own classes, their own systems, their own additions. Why didn't they just make their own game? Like, why why call it Pokemon? Why use Nintendo's property? Like, it feels like a point that, you know, if you're going this far to create your own elements, mm-hmm. then... Why take the risk of the nine year, your nine years of work being flushed away because Nintendo want to you know rightfully protect their copyrights because yeah they you know I don't know were they selling it was the game being sold I don't remember and I don't think so um, okay I, I I don't think seeing uh, purchase options for Pokemon Uranium maybe just donations sure uh, but yes I think it was one of the situations where. It started, of course, as a fan project, so no big expectations. But as these people started working on it and they got press, I think it basically got out of hand. And, you know, eventually they realized, well, why don't we spend a little more time on this and we make our own Pokemon and we make our own online service. Yeah, and see, I feel yes, at that point, that's they, a little they, too much. They, should have, they should have stripped the Pokemon out of it. Right, like mm. the the brand Pokemon should have been taken out of it because there are a bunch of games that are like Pokemon, right? Which do great because they're like Pokemon, and and yeah. I just wonder if like you kind of seal your own fate when you when you try and do something like this. Yeah, um, the, and the game got so much exposure. I mean, besides being talked about in in the video game blogs and forums and Twitch and YouTube as live streams. Um, it got over uh, one and a half million downloads, which is impressive for a fan-made Pokemon game. And of course, shortly after the release, uh, Nintendo got in touch uh, with the lawyers and cease and desist letters and the developers were forced to pull down the game. Uh, now, I, I still think, of course, it can be found in a bunch of shady places, which I will not link anywhere. But, you know, Google is your friend. And it's just impressive as a story. And uh, as Mike says, kind of fascinating how it happened like after nine years i guess you should have seen this coming i want to say um that nintendo was gonna get in touch with you and force you to pull the game which is a shame because i feel for those people but i also understand nintendo i mean i can only imagine at a much 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 smaller scale but if someone started replicating mac stories or relay fm as a fan project and they got over 1 million <laughs> downloads or whatever, I would also maybe be upset, you know, because it's my thing and, you know. Well, if someone did a show that that sounded like a Relay FM show and used Relay FM branding, yeah. I mean, I, I'm obviously <laughs> not one of the um, partners, but I'd get in touch with them and say, listen, <laughs> do you want to do this for real and actually get paid for it, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I think the reason these fans do what they do is because they love the universe so much and the original creators are not doing what the fans want to do necessarily the fans just do it out of love they want to extend that universe because they want to play in a universe that extends the thing that they love i'm not justifying it i'm just trying to explain the rationale that there were many games um from the old days Call them abandonware, if you like. Certainly, I'm, I'm not saying for a moment that Pokemon is abandonware. But what happened was that 
fans couldn't stand the fact that these games were no longer going to be developed. And so they would extend the universe. And it happened from the very earliest days. And this was just their way of keeping the game that they loved alive. I agree with that to, for, for a reason to do something like this. But like Pokemon isn't one of those. Right, like there was nothing wrong with Pokemon. I don't think anybody was expecting that game was going away, like just in this one instance. But I can understand how something like, like Half Life, can can get fan made games because it's unsure if it will ever actually come back. Right, so like I can see that where it's like people love Half Life. So they go out and create their own, or like they they skew it right and and make their own. It's Black Mesa, right? Is the fan game? Yes. And so I understand how you can go down that route, um, but that it's just again, like I I really I I seriously appreciate the creativity of the of the people that created Pokemon Uranium because it looks like they made something yeah incredible. Yeah. And in my mind. What Nintendo should be doing is, okay, protect your trademarks, but then hire all of these people because they clearly know how to make a great game. Yeah. Um, but it's it, it's just something that I struggle with because as a person who is an owner of a business who makes creative things, right? Like Shahid brought that, like he kind of like hinted towards that fact, right? There are things you have to protect and I I don't know how there could be another fate for a game like this yeah um and in fact another popular pokemon fan game that ended up in the same situation it was actually pulled by nintendo uh before it even came out i think it was called pokemon prism and you know it, it was a fan game that allowed you to play as the pokemon themselves it was kind of interesting as an idea and it also got pulled and uh, and you mentioned that Nintendo should hire these people. Uh, Kotaku uh, had an interview with the with the, the people at Game Freak, you know, the actual developers of the Pokemon games, mm-hmm. and those folks basically said, you know, if you're we we know we understand that there's a very passionate community behind Pokemon games, but we have a jobs webpage if you want to apply as a designer. Yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. you know, I mean, it's obvious. This is the best way to make a Pokemon game is come and work for Game Freak, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that... And, and sorry, but sorry to jump in, but what better CV to use yeah, I know. than a fan-made game, right? <laughs> There's yeah. my attachment. That is true. <laughs> what, what have you done? Well, uh, I got this illegal game that got over a million downloads and it looked like the real thing, so... I think I know what I'm doing. Uh, but really, the the interesting part about the Pokemon fan games and the ROM hacks um, is that they, they tend to be based on Pokemon Essentials. And Pokemon Essentials, it is a game project for RPG Maker XP um, that allows you to, to put together Pokemon-style games without writing complex code, without having to know a programming language or developing a game from scratch. So RPG Maker, uh, it's the you know the visual game making tool that allows you to assemble uh, game assets, mechanics, you know, uh, g- uh, dialogues, characters, visually to manipulate the game instead of having to write, you know, in C++ or whatever it is that people use these days. Um, and the Pokemon Essentials extension it was created in 2007, and it's and it's this whole package for creating Pokemon games in RPG Maker. It all, it includes 
support for battles, uh, menus, multiple storylines, locations. You know, you can add abilities to Pokemon. There's like a whole built-in series of templates to do all this visually. And you can basically get a working Pokemon game up and running in a few days if you know what you're doing. Um, and I, for, for the sake of science, I took a look at the wiki for Pokemon Ascensions and it was like 200 pages. And then I tried to watch a video on YouTube and it was incredible. Uh, they were like, you could add with two clicks a Pokemon Center to a town hmm. or you could have branching storylines uh, visually without having to know code. And and I think this is impressive. I know it's, again, tends to run along the lines of this is super illegal and this is super awesome. Uh, but, you know, as I said, for science and for the show, I thought it was super fascinating how, um, you know, there's people who, instead of being programmers by trade, like the traditional definition, they're, le- they're learning how to make these games with these kinds of tools. So um, I never actually use RPG Maker myself, but uh, Shahid, I assume it, it's a popular thing. I mean, I yeah, know the name. Yeah, I, yeah I know- RPG Maker has been around for for well decades now it mm-hmm. started off in japan i mean it's been used for absolutely tons of games and you can find you can actually find a ton of games that were made in rpg maker for sale uh, if you go to steam um have a look for rpg maker and you'll see there are a ton of games i i bought one not that long ago to the moon uh that was made in rpg maker oh really but, you know there there are tons of tools like this and they you know if you want to get into the history then they go back a very long way so RPG Maker obviously is is one very popular tool with a very long history, but there are a lot of other tools that let you make games without really having to know programming. So, for example, a very popular text adventure maker uh, exists called Twine, which you might have heard of. Yep, people use that. Uh, people use it for training as well. You know, if if you want to learn how to make a video game. At its simplest possible level, Twine is a very good way of getting your logic sorted out. Uh, there's Adventure Creator, which is a Unity asset. I mean, there's there's absolutely tons. There's Arcade Game Studio. Um, what else can I think of? There's uh, Adrift. Uh, you know, not as popular as some of the others, but there are loads of these things that pretty much use just a a very simple interface without you having to do any scripting or code. Of course, if you go beyond that, then there is an entire slew of engines and mm. middleware that let you make games with drag and drop and minimal scripting stuff like you, which you know about, like Game Maker Studio, yeah. uh, Unity, uh, but even Unreal, you know, with its blueprint system, lets you create games using drag and drop without ever having to write a single line of C plus plus. And I've seen people do it. I went to the um, Steam Dev Day thing in Seattle late last year and there was a company there that said you know what forget about c plus plus we made this vr game in i think it was eight weeks and it was they knew no code and they just did blueprints and they were done which was amazing and it was a good game i mean it wasn't great but it was good and it was a commercial release and they did all right with it but this thing goes you know this whole thing if if you don't mind me talking about it goes back to the very beginning you know if, if you go back to uh, the very early days of gaming. Here we are. Here we go again. Um, I can almost hear you yawning. Are you yeah, there asleep? No, we're still good. Don't we're worry, good. listeners. They're asleep. We got this. <laughs> <laughs> so the, <laughs> there was the um, 
1984, there was this thing called the Adventure Construction Kit. You ever heard of that? No. It was actually no. published by EA. It was a huge hit. And the, <laughs> of course, there's no internet. So the way you... What, what this is, is let you make 2D uh, adventure games on the Commodore 64. And you could share the games that you made on a floppy disk with your friends. <laughs> so this, this thing has a long tradition. There was a shoot 'em up construction kit. Uh, you know, there have been all kinds of game-making utilities going back decades. So RPG Maker is, I guess, very different in that it's been around for a long time now and it's still current. And that, mm. that's what's so cool about it. Yeah. Um, so now for something a little bit different. You guys know that I have a thing for Metroid. And a little bit, it, yeah. It, it was, it, a little bit, just a little bit. Um, and how, I don't want to say upset, but how hopeful I still am that Nintendo will eventually do a real Metroid game again. So last August, for the 30th anniversary of Metroid, um, this game, this fun remake uh, called AM2R, another, another Metroid remake, um, came out. And it was a, a fun remake of Metroid 2, uh, the Return of Samus, uh, the, the game that came out on the original Game Boy. And it had been in the works for five, six years, since 2012, basically, almost five years. And it basically had, you know, it brought better graphics because the, you know, the game was on the original Game Boy. And this remake used the the graphics of, you know, GBA assets. So kind of a zero mission, you know, uh, Metroid Zero Mission for the Game Boy Advance. Uh, it brought some gameplay elements of uh, the, the GBA title, new areas, and a lot of tweaks to the original mechanics of um, Metroid 2. So it was basically Metroid 2 reimagined for a more modern 2D graphic style and a lot of gameplay enhancements that Nintendo added to Metroid over the years, but that weren't available in the original Game Boy title. And let me tell you, as a Metroid fan, and I played all of the Metroid games, this thing, it looked like the real thing. It was it was legit, really. Uh, I, I could easily, if I didn't know it was a fan remake, I could easily be fooled that it was a Nintendo official remake. Uh, and it looked fantastic. And, you know, I, I watched a bunch of explanations of the developers of the tweaks that they brought to the game, and they, they were reasonable changes. It made sense. And, of course, it got pulled by Nintendo uh, because this is what they do. And, I, again, I totally understand why Nintendo is doing this. But there's an, an argument here that, it, that I found interesting, which is the Pokemon games, the fan games, they are made out of respect, out of love for the series. And Metroid, these fan games, they're also made out of love. But there's a difference. These days, we have no shortage of Pokemon games, whereas the Metroid fan games are trying to fill a niche that Nintendo seemingly doesn't care about anymore. And so they cover two different roles, the creators of the fan games for Pokemon and Metroid. Those for Pokemon, they just want to have like different takes on the series, different mechanics, you know, and maybe they're just made out of curiosity to learn RPG Maker. But these Metroid games and especially AM2R, were made to give the people who still love Metroid something to play, which I think is super fascinating and different from the Pokemon fan games. Yeah, it's like if you don't do it, we'll do it for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's, you know, 
maybe Nintendo will do something like this eventually. I don't know. It's just so sad. That you know, there is there is the thing about that is like that is how it feels, right? But like we don't actually know Nintendo like what they want to do with Metroid, right? Like I think you assume and hope that they are going to do something, right? And for all we know, there's going to be a remake, right? There's going to be a virtual console game. Like we don't know, and I think for them, it's like well we don't want anybody doing something that we might do, right? I think that might be like a part of why they do it. But from the fans' perspective, I totally understand it. Like if you love that game and the the people that own that franchise are doing nothing with it, then how can they be harmed, right? They're not doing anything. So what's the point? You know, what, what's the problem with doing yeah. it? If we're not taking anything away from them because they're choosing not to do it themselves. Like I can totally see how something like that appears for metroid and i actually think it's a little bit more fair like on the side of the game creator than something like pokemon where they're just like we're unsatisfied with the way that the games are made and we think we can make them better like but there are still pokemon games coming all the time right like there's a new one basically every single year but as you say like Mm -hmm. for metroid there hasn't been anything or anything like this original metroid game for a very very long time now yeah yeah all right, let's take a break. We have more We have more that we want to talk about, more examples. But I want to take a moment to thank our friends over at Blue Apron for supporting this week's show. Blue Apron are the number one recipe delivery service with the freshest ingredients. For less than $10 per meal, you'll get seasonal recipes with fresh, high-quality ingredients from Blue Apron to let you make delicious home-cooked meals. They're Incredible food all comes with these amazing recipe cards. They're step-by-step, so you can follow along with the pre-portioned ingredients that you get from Blue Apron and prepare your meals in 40 minutes or less. You only get the ingredients that you need. You don't get nothing more, nothing less. And you can feel rest assured that Blue Apron will be giving you incredible ingredients because of the standards that they set for their suppliers. They really, really believe in having the freshest of ingredients. No Blue Apron recipes are repeated within a year, and you'll be able to make food like beef teriyaki stir-fry and sugar snap peas and lime rice, three cheese and baby broccoli stromboli with tomato and oregano dipping sauce, or maybe even crispy salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds and creme fraiche sauce. You can choose from a variety of their recipes every week, or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. They're delivered to 99% of the continental u.s there's no weekly commitment and their freshness guarantee means that every ingredient arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right check out this week's menu and get three meals for free with your first purchase including free shipping by going to blueapron.com remaster you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with blue apron so go to blueapron.com remaster and we thank them for their support of this show and relay fm blue apron a better way to cook oh my god i'm hungry now <laughs> It gets you, right? <laughs> you make it sound so good. Every time Mike talks about them, I was like, I'm picturing these dishes and I was like, I'm so hungry right now. And instead I'm doing a podcast. It's, it's not fair. We should just take a lunch break every time we do one of the spots. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so more Nintendo, but with a different, maybe more positive outcome. Um, back at GDC a few months ago, Nintendo showed how the prototyped the new Breath of the Wild Zelda game using an old NES-based or NES-like 
engine, like a 2D engine that allowed them to try different ideas more quickly. Instead of having to prototype ideas with a full 3D engine and 3D interaction model, they just, you know, created this huge open world in 2D with the NES-like graphics, and they just tested a bunch of ideas like uh, cutting trees and using, you know, different elements from, you know, resources and interacting with enemies. And so they showed this footage of uh, Breath of the Wild as uh, as it would have been uh, looking as an NES game. And of course, someone looked at the footage and thought, you know what, I should actually make a fan-made game based on this, like a playable version of this prototype. So this person uh, started working on this, and it was called, the project was called Zelda Breath of the NES. Um, there was a bunch of articles about it, and the, the guy was seriously committed to doing this project. Until, of course, Nintendo got in touch. Uh, the guy was forced to stop making Breath of the NES. But this time, instead of just dropping the project, because I think in the meantime, this person was getting donations or Patreons from people. So he decided to keep working on this, but to drop the Zelda copyright material, to drop the Zelda assets, and just make his own 2D retro-looking Zelda-like game, of which there are plenty these days, Um, but based on those ideas that Nintendo showed and sort of that graphic style, but without the Zelda stuff. And in theory, it'll be a game eventually. And I think... There's maybe a playable version already on itch.io, but I'm not sure. Anyway, Kotaku has the interview with the guy. Uh, I'm kind of, you know, I'm surprised that he's still doing this just because people are going to remember remember this game forever as the Zelda game that never was. But I'm also happy that this person found another solution. That is definitely a, a way to deal with it, I guess. I mean, you put the work in, keep going. That's kind of what I was saying about the Pokemon ones, but... Just make sure that you're not stealing the... Not stealing, borrowing, maybe. Uh, Freebooting. Free, yeah, freebooting <laughs> the characters. Perfect. Now, this is a perfect example of your uh, devil's advocacy from earlier, Mike, in that what gives a game or this particular game value was the fact that it used Zelda and Zelda IP. And Federico made the point that it would be just like any other once you removed Zelda, once, um, you know, there, there was original material substituted. And that's just it. There is only one Zelda. Now it's just going to be another one, uh, uh, another game that is like Zelda. And that's why Nintendo and many other players protect their IP so vigorously, because that's where the value is. As soon as you attach that label, Zelda, to a game, you have instant attention. If you can't attach that label, you have to compete for that attention. I I know not everybody likes it, but that's the world we live in. That's the financial system that we've created, and that's the IP system that we've created. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So now, for a company that does the opposite of what Nintendo is doing, and that is Sega... um, this is quite different, and, and it's a very different approach. So Sega is working on Sonic Mania, which is coming out, I think, sometime later this year. And it's this um, retro-looking Sonic game that a lot of people are excited about because 
you know, there, there have been some terrible games in the in the Sonic series, and especially the 3D ones have not been great at all. There's also a 3D Sonic game called Sonic Forces, which is also coming out this year, I think, and which people are not excited about because it's <laughs> another 3D Sonic game. But still, Sonic Mania, go take a look at the videos on YouTube. It looks fantastic, especially if you were into Sonic on the Mega Drive or Sonic CD. It looks amazing, and there's a reason for that. Um, there's this guy called Christian Whitehead uh, on the internet. He's known as the Taxman. And back in 2007, he created this game called Retro Sonic. Um, and what was impressive about Retro Sonic was that um, Whitehead made a complete Sonic engine from scratch. And it's, it was a, a graphic and animation and game engine that w was based on the original games for the Mega Drive and even inspired by Sonic CD, I think. Um, it was basically inspired by the Sonic games of the early 90s, but without the frame rate issues and without some of the problems of the original games, it was basically a modernized take done by a single person on the original Sonic games. And... He showed off this Retro Sonic at the Sonic Amateur Game Expo, which is a, a, an event that apparently exists. Um, and other teams of people, other teams of game creators, started using the engine uh, of Whitehead. And eventually Sega noticed this person, and they were like, you know what, you should come work for us and use what you did and get Sonic CD working on the iPhone. So in 2009... Uh, Whitehead built another engine, he got Sonic CD working on the iPhone, and he started collaborating with Sega, and two years later, Sonic CD came out on the... Uh, a remake of Sonic CD came out on the iPhone, Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and even Android, and the engine made by Whitehead was powering this game. And it was a whole new engine. It didn't it had support for uh, widescreen monitors and, of course, you know, mobile devices, touch controls. The loading times were gone. The frame rate issues were gone. And it was basically a remaster. Um, you know, no pun intended. Uh, but And it, looks fant it looked fantastic, especially for people who were really into Sonic City. And I, I bought the game, and I remember it was very impressive, actually. Uh, Later, Sega hired uh, Whitehead alongside another guy uh, called Simon Thomley. He was known as Stealth on the internet. These people always have the coolest names. I kind of wish I had a, an internet name like these two. Um, <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, cool. And together they, they worked on, a, on a converting uh, the original Sonic the Hedgehog and Sonic 2 for Android and iOS. And those two ports for Android and iOS are still widely acclaimed as the some of the best conversions from old consoles that have been released on, on iOS and other mobile devices. Uh, Thumbly, by the way, is the person who had created a ROM editor to make it easy for other people to create Sonic hacks. So it kind of looked at, into the code of a, of a Sonic ROM, a ROM from, you know, the back in the Mega Drive and Genesis sort of games, and to modify them. Um, it was, you know, Tom Lee was another uh, fan creator of Sonic mods and tools. He created Soned, which is a level uh, editor for Sonic games. Bunch of great things coming from these uh, two people. Uh, so we get to Sonic Mania, which is the game that is coming out this year. And Sonic Mania, um, 
is the work of Thomley and Whitehead now working for Sega and they they basically are the experts they poured their lives into understanding the Sonic engines Sega told them to start working on this and they are collaborating with the company to make this game happen to make it look like a like a legit Sonic game inspired by the old titles and this is the reason why people are so excited about Sonic Mania because Sega embraced the fan community and they took the best people from that community on board they gave them the tools the resources the time the money to work on this properly and Sonic Mania is the result and it again watch the videos it looks fantastic especially if you're an, an old school Sonic fan um, this is the reason why when it was announced uh, the people you know the reaction in the crowd was kind of wild uh, because they know the the background of uh, the taxman and stealth uh, they're both working on this and I think it's very clever of Sega to do this and the very last news uh, from a few days ago is that Sonic Forces, which, you know, people are not excited about, but still, Sega is adding um, an avatar creation UI and feature to the game. So if you want, you can make your own custom Sonic character in the game, which is not making a fan game, but it sort of shows how the company is open to sort of embracing modifications and and is very aware of this fan community uh, constantly tweaking, you know, Sonic games and making their own Sonic stuff. And now they're having this sort of uh, throwback in this game where you can make your own Sonic characters and you can modify them however you want. And I think it's kind of cool and I think it's very clever uh, how, you know, Sega got these two people to work on Sonic Mania. Yeah, I think that that is a good example of the way that they've they've tackled this, especially because, well, I mean, I think part of the reason that they probably did this is like Sega is coming at this from a very different angle to to some of the other companies that we've mentioned in that they need the help a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so I, I I think that like the Sonic they have they have struggled to make a critically acclaimed Sonic game, and this is a good way to do that i think they've they've found some people that are making critically acclaimed sonic games independently and now they've hired them i think it's a it's it's a good move but like i, I think the situation it is different to some of the ones we mentioned already you know yeah it yeah. is i mean also in the sense that sega is of course no longer a hardware company mm -hmm. so you know they they don't have uh, so much skin in the game in that respect and therefore, there's no way of creating any kind of competition on any Sega hardware because it no longer exists. And in Nintendo's case, what they had was a handheld device on which piracy was rife. And it was possible in the internet era to distribute fan-made games that were playable on their devices. And they simply couldn't have that. Yeah. We got a bunch of suggestions from our listeners uh, and other friends since we talked about our intention to do a fan-made uh, episode, a remaster. And uh, our friend Russell, Mike, he sent us a link to this game called Pokemon Brick Bronze, uh, which is a fan game that runs... And this is completely new to me. It runs on R Roblox, and Roblox is this 
online social gaming platform that allows people to create their own sandbox style games based on the Lua programming language. It looks very different, but Pokemon Brick Runs, it, it, it's a thing that people are playing. It's apparently very popular and it doesn't look anything like a traditional Pokemon game. And I think it's because uh, all the Roblox games tend to look kind of similar. It's sort of a mix of Minecraft and Lego characters, maybe. That's mm -hmm. my best interpretation. I've never heard of Roblox either, which I think Me means neither. that I'm getting old. Yes, and in fact, our friend Russell he said, uh, this is what the kids play these days. That could be the reason why. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're not kids we're anymore, not kids anymore, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there's a Game of Thrones mod for Crusader Kings 2. I guess if you're into Game of Thrones, that's something you should check out. I actually never watched Game of Thrones, so Same. Uh, there you go. Does that make us young or old? I'm not sure which one that is. Uh, it makes me terrible. Okay, maybe. great. I don't great. know. Uh, and that, that there's the world of ROM hacks, which is probably deserves its own episode sometime in the future. And it's kind of, uh, you know, similar to fan-made games, but it's more along the lines of these are mods for... Nintendo and Sega ROMs. Uh, there's Super Mario 3 Mix, which is a, a very deep reimagination of Super Mario Bros. 3. Uh, it adds new levels, objects, more worlds, and it, it was this is super awesome and scary. It was done by hacking the assembly code of the original My Super word. Mario Bros. 3. Yeah, at the, if you take a look at the video in the show notes, uh, it shows what the assembly code looks like. It's a bunch of plain text, and it's awful. I'm not <laughs> now sure you're how... talking my language. <laughs> okay. I mean, come on, seriously. And hey, this person... it gets worse. <laughs> really? It does? It gets worse, oh, yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about the dark side of modding and fan games, the dark side is essentially cloning and in ios it's rife well imagine the work they've got to do there they've got to not only uh disassemble the code from the original game i'm not praising them for this by the way i'm just saying this is what they've got to do but they've got to decrypt it and they've got to work out what the encryption system is and rearrange everything before making some minor modifications and then releasing it and and basically uh, taking revenue away from the developer of the original, and often exposure as well. Yeah. We saw, of course, the case of uh, Threes in 2048, and you see that the the creator of 2048 was actually quite unrepentant, but many people saw Threes as you know, the original, which, of course, it was. It, it did come out before. Um, but this has happened many, many times. We had a situation at playstation i can't name the title but the creator of an extremely popular title a groundbreaking title in fact in fact a genre uh, definer got cloned by somebody else and in you know legally there was very little we could do because the action had had to be instigated by the original creator the copyright holder because it's their copyright they've got to initiate any legal action and of course the creators of these original games are often small and independent and just don't have the resources to finance a, a, a legal process 
So yeah, there is that dark side as well. Yeah. Wow. Um, last two. Super Metroid Rotation. Super Metroid Rotation is Super Metroid flipped on its side. Um, <laughs> these people, for some reason, thought it would be a good idea to take Super Metroid and flip it. So now, uh, you know, where you would be walking, now you need to jump. And it makes the game, of course, more, more difficult because it wasn't meant to have this kind of verticality. Um, and there were even speedruns for this game and it looks impossible to play. And I mean, Super Metroid, it, it is not an easy game. And this thing looks like hell. I assume it's a lot of really long falls, right? Like you're just falling a lot, I imagine, is the way you play yeah, the game. I think so. You need to jump a lot and you need to do the double jumps and the wall jumps constantly. It, it, it looks incredibly difficult. Um, and finally, I have a, a collection of uh, Pokemon ROM hacks. Uh, these are maybe not full fun games, but they're more like extended mods. And some of these things, they look like completely anything unlike Pokemon <laughs> and I, I I don't know how to describe them but there's some where you play as the Pokemon other games where they actually this is a good idea there was one that tried to adapt the story from the anime and the movie so you have Ash for example you have uh, you know the other characters from Brock. the original anime Brock yes Misty, uh, what was the, Misty. I was mm -hmm. about to say Leslie for some reason <laughs> <laughs> been watching too much Parks and Rec, I guess. Leslie, it's not Leslie. yep, yep. It's the, Misty. The popular Pokemon anime Leslie. character. Ashbrook and Leslie. The gym leader, Leslie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and Misty, it's Misty. Thank you, Mike. Uh, so there was that ROM hack that brought the the story to, to the game. It looks very nice. Uh, but again, uh, I'm not sure I want to play these games. I'm just fascinated by their creation and their stories. Which brings me to my conclusion that I sort of some thoughts that I wanted to discuss and to go over. Um, my, the main takeaway is that Nintendo is obviously against this stuff and Sega isn't, which as Mike said, uh, they come from two different places and maybe Sega needs more this community and Nintendo doesn't need them. And also, I don't know, but Nintendo has been traditionally against this stuff. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I read the story of uh, people making their own bootleg Amiibo cards, and of course, <laughs> Nintendo got in touch with the lawyers. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, it just, Nintendo seems, I don't want to say overprotective, but the moment that they discover you, it's bad news. They are very protective, right? Like, Nintendo are notoriously difficult for game streaming as well, right? That like Yes. They, they do a lot of copyright claim, and they take revenue and stuff like that, people on YouTube. Like, they are... They are one of the most restrictive. And also, I, I wanted to note how YouTube and Twitch have fundamentally changed the the public's perception of these games and the relationship between the, the creators of fan games and the people who discovered them. This used to be uh, hacks, maybe short-lived projects, and now they have a much bigger audience because they can be on a much bigger stage and a lot of people can discover these quote-unquote secret games that used to be discussed on tiny forum boards uh, across tiny communities but now if you consider twitter and twitch and youtube and all these bigger places where gamers can communicate with each other can exchange ideas and can showcase their games as they play them and as they make them that that has really changed how fan-made games can be discovered, especially if you consider, you know, YouTubers doing Let's Plays of custom 
you know, fan-made Pokemon games and people discovering them, getting curious, getting excited. It's a whole feedback loop that has changed this relationship between the creators and the players. But this is also a double-edged sword because, yes, it means that creators of fan games now can reach a bigger audience, but also that the parent companies of the copyright, you know, the copyright owners, Nintendo and, and others, can more easily discover these guys, can more easily discover these titles and get in touch with attorneys and send season desist letters. So it's good news in terms of now we can show our ideas to a lot more people. We can get covered by the press more easily because you just need to go to YouTube and maybe follow a live stream on Twitch. But now it also means... Well, it's we are more likely if the project gets popular to be stopped in our tracks right away because the same tools that people use to discover us are the same tools that you know Nintendo and others rely upon to discover people like us. So I don't know. Um, it's fascinating to me how, from a creative perspective, there's people who invest their times, and and I'm not saying this ironically. I'm I'm really fascinated by the you know whether it's the design or understanding a games engine or you know decrypting a ROM. I'm really I'm really intrigued by how people can be can deconstruct a game and make another. I think it's very fascinating, and I almost wonder you know maybe Nintendo should make their own RPG maker thing eventually. It's never gonna happen, but it's a fun thought exercise. Um, and also uh, it just confirms to me how much YouTube especially has changed how we discover games. Because I remember, you know, knowing about the existence of ROM hacks and and fan games back in the day when, you know, the internet was new to me and I was just reading news of video games and magazines. But with YouTube, it's just so easy to discover anything and to take a look at the fan game and see what's up, you know, see what's changed. We live in 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 a very different era and... Uh, this is both great news for creators and also bad news because, you know, the lawyers are coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> 